in her recent book, Young, Gifted, and Black, A Journey of Lament and Celebration, Sheila Wise Rowe tells us that after his groundbreaking movie Black Panther won the top film prize at the 2019 Screen Actors Guild Awards, the late actor Chadwick Boseman borrowed language from Nina Simone's song to be young, gifted, and black, a powerful 1969 anthem of the civil rights movement. Much like Chadwick's movie, Nina's lyrics celebrate black love, hope, and joy, while not shying away from lament and grief born out of suffering, loss, and regret. We must begin to tell our young. A line from Nina's song calls us to consider what a lovely, precious dream to be young, gifted, and black. Open your heart to what I mean. Her song continues to honor and inspire black folks of all ages from across America and around the world. Roe continues, in his speech, Chadwick says, to be young, gifted, and black, we all knew that we had something special that we wanted to give the world that we could be full human beings in the roles that we were playing, that we could create a world that exemplified a world that we wanted to see. He continued backstage, and when you aspire to do something that is outside the realm of what the world would see you doing, to be young, gifted, and black is all of that. It's to have everything, but then not be quite able to grasp it, and still, be able to persevere through that. Art collector, patron, and educator Bernard Lumpkin explains he borrowed the title Young, Gifted, and Black from Nina Simone and playwright Lorraine Hansberry for an exhibition and companion book. And we'll soon learn why that phrase is especially fitting here. But Lumpkin tells us he has a connection with the phrase, young, gifted, and black, that's even deeper and truly personal. And we'll let Horace Silver's song for my father set the tone with its roots in his father's homeland of Cape Verde. Bernard Lumpkin writes, Though this book borrows its title from Nina Simone and Lorraine Hansberry, my first sense of what it means to be young, gifted, and black came from my father, a physicist, educator, and triathlete. He was a true Renaissance man whose drive and talents carried him far from his modest beginnings. Oscar James Lumpkin Jr., the eldest of eight children, was born in 1937 in the then predominantly Black Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles. At Cathedral High School, he ran track, won awards in math and journalism, and graduated as the salutatorian of the class of 1955. But science was his true passion and his salvation. As a teenager, his parents couldn't afford to buy him a telescope, so he fabricated one from scratch, pointed it at the stars, and charted his future a future which ultimately included stints at IBM, Yale, and along the way with the decades-long post he held in the physics department at the University of California, San Diego. 
Lumpkin continues, not long after retiring from academia, my father was diagnosed with cancer. We spent his last months together. During this time, he shared with me stories from his life growing up in Watts, embracing the social and political ferment of the 1960s in New York, and discovering what it means to be a black American while living in Europe. He also talked about his parents and their roots. At times funny, sad, or serious, these stories had a profound impact on me, and they helped me better understand my own place and purpose in the world. In the course of those conversations with my father about the telescope, about growing up in Watt, about our family, and also about being black in America at that time, what resonated with me was the idea of continuing these conversations. You know, they weren't complete. There weren't answers necessarily. It was just conversations with my father, which, you know, could have been a subtitle or a subtext for the exhibition in many ways. So after he passed, I came back to New York. I looked at the art collection. I realized that I could continue those conversations with my father through my conversations with artists of color, particularly emerging artists. My father had been a teacher. My mother had been a teacher. I had gone to school and graduate school. I was supposed to become a professor. I realized that I could use the collection as a way to teach young people, particularly about history, about family, about identity. Bernard Lumpkin speaking with us by phone, joining William Crow, director and professor of practice art, architecture, and design at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, to introduce us to the Lumpkin Bocuse Family Collection and the nationwide traveling exhibition, Young, Gifted, and Black, that is currently on view at the Lehigh University Art Galleries. This is a show featuring a wide range of styles, images, and materials. Speaking to our theme of artists conversing with their family heritage, we'll encounter a stunning painting titled Reef by Cy Gavin. Artnet News tells us this Pennsylvania-born artist draws inspiration from Bermuda, the homeland of his father, and a place the artist has often visited to conduct research on his family's history. His art incorporates the country's flora and fauna, as well as its complicated history as a pivotal site during the transatlantic slave trade. Just one of the intriguing images in this powerful exhibition, which will run through May 27th at Lehigh, with an artist talk in public reception this Tuesday, February 22nd, in Baker Hall at the Zoner Art Center. This is the second part of our conversation, and that is the key word, conversation. We explore how Bernard Lumpkin wants the works in his collection and this exhibition to engage us in conversation, and in a larger sense, as he just suggested, how the exhibition itself and its artists continue his song with his father. For me, as a collector, I try very much to act like a curator. All the curators that I speak with know that I'm sort of a, um, a closet curator because I try to hang art in the home with an eye to creating conversations between works of art, whether it has to do with subject matter, portraits of musicians, for instance, or maybe material, works of art that are made with unconventional materials, getting back to the Watchtowers. I love to hang a work of textile or tapestry next to a work that has fabric or that has clothing in it to draw the viewer's attention to the way the artists are using these unconventional, in an art-speaking sense, these unconventional materials in their work. 
the conversations, so there are conversations that we sort of set up or that I guess I would say I would offer to viewers in the exhibition. But for me, just as important are the conversations that viewers create or that, that they complete, maybe is a better way to put it. If you think of a work of art, as William was saying, as asking a question or presenting a problem, you know, the viewer is the person who completes that, who can provide an answer or can provide their own answer. So I think that there are the conversations that we as collectors, as curators, as museum directors deliberately want to create. But then there are also the conversations that happen by accident, which can only be realized by a viewer who connects with a work or who makes a connection between two works or among different works, as you did with the Eric Dolphy by Chase Hall and the painting by Jordan Castile of a drummer, a drummer and a jazz musician. Exactly, exactly. And we've been really fortunate at Lehigh University Art Galleries because this is an exhibition that is on loan to us for the spring semester, and it's it's coming to us from some other institutions where it was installed in, in different ways. So it was at Lehman College in the Bronx, and it was just more recently at Gallery 400 at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And so our curator, Mark Wansidler, and our exhibition designer, Jeffrey Ludwig-Dykes, really had an opportunity to look at what are the different choices that were made in those spaces. And of course, to be able to stay in touch with Bernard and his vision for the exhibition. We have a space at Lehigh, our main gallery space where the exhibition is on view, where one can kind of stand in the middle of this large gallery and and really see most of the works of art from almost a single vantage point. So it, in many ways, it's a unique space in that you know, one can have kind of multiple conversations with the works of art, even just standing in the middle of the galleries. And then, of course, what we also hope people will do is carry that experience with them to, to other parts of the galleries, actually just the floor below our main gallery, our, our lower gallery. They might venture down there and, and see we have this monumental painting by the abstract artist Jack Whitten, or we have a, a wonderful print by Romare Beard and another artist where hopefully they can continue that conversation with the works of art. And mentioning Romero, Bearden brings up the notion of generations. And you do, don't you, Bernard, have a range of young and cutting-edge artists. But within that overarching notion, there are still artists more, more senior than some of them. Maybe the earlier generations are asking similar questions and maybe giving one set of answers or not answers, but raising the questions in some ways, or there are new questions. Is there anything that jumps out in terms of generations in this particular collection? You know, I think, Erica, the intergenerational dialogue, which I think is what you're referring to, is critical in any conversation around contemporary art, whether it's a book, an exhibition. It's important for people to understand that there's a lineage with young artists working today. They are simultaneously breaking new ground. They're also standing on the shoulders of giants, as people say. And I think particularly with Black artists, for me, part of that intergenerational dialogue is, is resurrecting what many people did not know about the younger generation's forebearers, which is that Black artists, for instance, are very well known for portrait making and for depicting work about the struggle. So Romery Bearden, for instance, which we just talked about, or Jacob Lawrence, Black artists in the 60s were sort of tasked both within their own community and the greater world at large, with depicting the struggle of being black in America. 
So you have the migration series. You have, in the case of Jacob Lawrence, you have the migration series. In the case of Romy Bearden, you have the Harlem street scenes. So that's very important, and that's an essential part of black art history. But there was another art, there was another group of artists. There were other artists who were working parallel to artists like Romy Bearden and Jacob Lawrence who were making work in abstraction. So for me, growing up the son of a physicist, a black physicist, abstraction was always something that was challenging, and for that reason, I was very uh, drawn to that and curious about it. And I wanted to know why my father, who could have been a lawyer or a doctor or a businessman, as his parents wanted him to be, given his intelligence and his success in school and academics, why he chose science, why he wanted to point a telescope to the stars instead of going to an office and working in the business world. So I feel like, for me, the story of abstraction in black art is a great lens through which to view this intergenerational dialogue. So we have contemporary black artists who are working in abstraction, but they themselves are rooted in the work. And by that, there are artists in the exhibition, such as Samuel Levi Jones, Tamashi Jackson, another artist who uses abstraction, and also some elements of representation in her work. There are paintings by Andy Robert, the painter also whose work, some would say, sort of rides the line or is on the border of abstraction and figuration. But for many black artists in the 60s, working in abstraction was not a popular choice, and many people saw it as being outside of the political conversation. You know, how can you change the world? How can you address racism? How can you fight the civil rights battle with a painting that doesn't look like anything or a person that I can see or recognize? Artists like Norman Lewis, artists like Alma Thomas, artists like Sam Gilliam, they all had that extra struggle of not just being a black artist, but being an artist, a black artist who was choosing a medium which wasn't always as readily aligned to the sort of larger project of progress and freedom. Of course, those artists would argue the opposite, which is that that was precisely what they were doing in their work, that the decision and the choice to work in abstraction was a specifically political decision, which which spoke to the freedom that they felt and deserved as artists, that they didn't have to be confined or contained within this particular art-making art mode. So that's just an example for me of why in the exhibition and also in the collection, I try to draw out these conversations and these influences from the older artists and the younger artists. And then just one more point about the intergenerational dialogue, and that has to do with myself as a collector and a patron, Many people today might think that black artists have just begun to be collected, that their work has just begun to be shown in museums and galleries. And that, that is true in a very public sense, that black artists have more recognition now than they have traditionally had in this country. That this moment we are in right now, 2022, is very much being talked about as a renaissance or as a golden age of, of black art. But it's not the only renaissance. It's not the only golden age. That, in fact, for many years, Black artists were supported and their work was preserved and protected and passed down by black collectors, by black patrons. We've heard of the Rockefellers and we know of Aggie Gunn, but there were other collectors and patrons like those illustrious philanthropic families that were located within the black community, that were families, and that they didn't have access to museums. And instead of showing their work in museums, the home became a space to show work. The home became a salon. Bell Hooks talks about this, the importance of the black, black family living room as a space for showing art, a public space that's also a political space, a private space that's also about the community. And so for me as a patron, 
And people say, oh, Bernard, you know, it's so amazing what you're doing. And, you know, how did you come to do this sort of support for black artists? I always point out that, first of all, I'm not the only one doing this today, number one. And number two, I am not the only person who has done this before. You just haven't heard about them. They have not been as publicized. So part of what these younger artists are also doing by connecting and by raising awareness around the older generation is there was also an older generation of collectors and patrons who might not have been able to sit on museum boards the way I do, who might not have had the same access to art that now collectors of any color have access to, but who nevertheless, you know, in much more hostile circumstances, took it upon themselves to preserve this cultural capital, which is what, what art is. It's our cultural capital. And they took it upon themselves. They saw the value in it. They had the vision. And they saw that this work should be preserved and protected and passed down for future generations. And so I see myself in that lineage as well. And Erica, I've been fortunate as the exhibition has been on tour in different universities I will do my best to be present, to be part of the conversation, the public conversation around the artists and their work. But I also try to drop in sort of unexpectedly and unannounced just so I can see how students, how members of the community are experiencing and responding to works of art. And, you know, when I'm watching someone stand in front of this painting, for instance, or in front of a portrait of a den mother that Carrie James Marshall did, he did a series of works on paper and paintings, which are riffing on the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. And one of those works on paper is included in our collection. And I always think of it as a sort of icon of my mother. We had it hanging in the hallway of the house because it's a very strong, powerful figure of a woman and the role of then mother, of course, in the context of the, of the Boy Scouts and, you know, that whole community is resonant as well. But I think being present and observing people watching and experiencing the exhibition for me is one of the sort of secret pleasures of this experience and where I learned so much. And you can sort of tell the moment when someone is standing in front of a painting or a sculpture or a video or a photo, and they just, they're hooked. And, you know, I don't even need to know exactly what is it that's hooking them, but you can tell that there's a connection being made. And I love what William said earlier about, about having a gallery or a museum or a collection where people can discover themselves, where they can find themselves. And so much of the history of museums in America especially has been, they have been not been places where people of color can go and find themselves and see themselves and celebrate themselves. And so, so much of what the pleasure that I get of doing this exhibition and partnering with people like William and Lehigh is to create those moments, those those connections, to create a stage, to make the setting where those connections can happen and where people can enter into a museum space, a gallery space, and see themselves. Maybe for the first time, they have not seen themselves, people who look like them, family members, friends. And that's the takeaway for me when I'm watching people experiencing this exhibition in the flesh, in person. Bernard, as you were just helping us consider Black artists and abstraction, you tied the notion, in a way, to your father and his real desire to be a scientist. Do you know where that longing came from? I think, to answer your question as best as I can, my father was really a pure scientist. I think he saw his work as being a Black physicist as obviously having a larger political import, as it were, or larger significance. And in that capacity, as an educator, as a scientist, he was very engaged with civil rights and the issues of his time. He fought for an open admissions policy at City College here in New York City. It didn't previously have that, whereby 
a greater range of high school students would have access to the college education. And that was something that he was instrumental in helping change that policy. So I think he used his platform as a scientist, and he was doing a postdoc at Columbia University, again, another institution of privilege, which I think obviously must have been challenging for him coming from Watts and then landing in New York City as a postdoc at Columbia in a science department. This was not like an English department, for instance, or a humanities department. So you can imagine how much diversity there was at that time in science departments at an Ivy League university. So I think his, the, your question in terms of what was the impetus or the spirit or the mission behind his choosing science, I think he saw his position, the significance of it, as others would see it, as I'm describing it now. But at the end of the day, he was an artist. You know, he he saw the value of his position, and he used it in a good way. And I think that was important. But at the end of the day, he was also just a scientist. He loved to go to the lab. He loved to teach. He loved the dialogue with his students. And regardless of the color of his skin, I think he just wanted to do science. You know, I think the same way that what I was saying about abstract painters, the black painters of the 60s and 70s who just wanted to paint abstract canvases, they just wanted the freedom to follow their passion as artists. Their, their calling was the calling that an artist had to understand the world, to reinterpret the world, to imagine a different world. And I think for my father, his calling, you know, for whatever reason, was science, was physics, was astronomy. And, you know, when you're 16 years old and you're building a telescope from scratch and you're pointing it to the stars above Watts, Los Angeles, I mean, you have to have a pretty deep calling. And the world around you is telling you that, what, why are you doing that? So I think, I hope that answers your question. I think my father recognized the value of his position and he used it to help people. He used it to gain wider access to higher education of the sort that, that he was lucky to have. But he also was just a pure scientist. And I think there's a lot, there's a lesson there too about freedom, about the freedom to pursue your passion and to, to follow your dreams, however difficult that, that journey may be. Art collector, patron, and educator Bernard Lumpkin, and William Crow, director and professor of practice art, architecture, and design at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, introducing us to the Lumpkin Bocuse Family Collection of Contemporary Art, curated by Antoine Sargent and Matt Wyckoff. There is a traveling exhibition featuring works from this collection. And the exhibition is titled Young, Gifted, and Black. And it is currently on view at the Lehigh University Art Galleries, running through May 27th. There will be an artist talk with a public reception this Tuesday, February 22nd, in Baker Hall at the Zollner Art Center. Artists from the show will be there, as will Bernard Lumpkin. The gathering gets underway at 6 o'clock and will run until 8.30. And that's at Baker Hall at the Zollner Arts Center, Tuesday, February 22nd. And it is an artist talk and a public reception. For more information, luag.lehigh.edu. And luag stands for Lehigh University Art Galleries. So L-U-A-G, lehigh.edu.